Good morning. This morning in the hall outside, I passed by one of the other residents who said, good luck, it's a tough crowd. <laughs> I have sometimes been a tough crowd myself. And whether you are feeling tough or tender this morning, I'm glad you're here. It's good to be together. I take refuge in Buddha in the awakened nature of every being. I take refuge in Dharma, in the path of understanding and love. I take refuge in Sangha, in you. At the conclusion of Reb Anderson's guidance in Shikantaza, he says, we can't do it by ourselves, and nobody else can do it for us. Nobody else can do it for us. We must, each of us, take up the task. We can't do it by ourselves, so we have to do it together. It takes a village to awaken a being. The case. This is Blue Cliff Record number 11 and Book of Serenity number 53. Huang Bo addressed the assembly and said, you are all slurpers of dregs. If you go on studying Zen like that, where will you have today? Do you not know that in all the land of China, there is no Zen teacher? Then a monk came forward and said, but Surely there are those who teach disciples and preside over assemblies. What about that? Hongbo said, I do not say there is no Zen, but that there is no Zen teacher. There's no Zen teacher, but there is Zen. No Zen teacher means nobody to do it for us. Nobody whose words we just have to learn, whose posture and movements we just have to imitate. If you're looking to your teacher for truth, you're just gobbling up the dregs. But there is Zen. There is this thing that we do together the system that includes disciples and assemblies with monks that the monk referred to. I'll come back to that. But first, let's just fantasize. No Zen teachers. Just imagine that. And I say this as someone who is, full disclosure, kind of a Zen teacher. Not ordained, not Dharma transmitted. I am designated Dharma teacher in the boundless way. And perhaps there's a part of you that imagines no Zen teachers and thinks, that'd be great. No one to tell you at every turn that you're wrong. They don't put it that way, of course, but you know what they mean. In particular, you're wrong because you fail to understand that you're intrinsically right. <laughs> Zen teachers can be so exasperating. And you are all here today, so there must be something about this practice and these institutions that support and purvey this practice that has not yet chased you off, 
But I'm guessing there may have been moments when you've had some doubts, some doubts in particular about Zen teachers. You may have had the thought that Zen wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the Zen teachers. They're all the time cautioning against dualism. But the dualism that they want you to drop are ones that never would have occurred to you if the teacher hadn't introduced them. <laughs> Form and emptiness. <laughs> Whatever it was that first brought you into a Zen center, my guess is that it wasn't that you were looking for help extricating yourself from the dualism of form and emptiness. No close friend ever took you aside and said, dude, you've got dualism of form and emptiness. You should have that looked at. Now, something else first got you in the door of a Zen center. And there you are, and the teacher tells you that you see there's form and there's emptiness, and then she tells you that actually they are the same. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. It's right there in the Heart Sutra. And you're like, well, why did you tell me there were these two things if there's just the one? <laughs> Another dualism is one you probably had more of an inkling about. There's this thing, supposedly, called enlightenment. And those who don't have it are unenlightened. But then, some Zen or Buddhism teacher or book tells you the story of Buddha's enlightenment, where he's been sitting beneath the Bodhi tree by the banks of a river all night. And as the dawn is breaking, he looks up and sees the morning star. And he exclaims, behold. All beings are enlightened just as they are. And you're like, wait. If all beings are enlightened, then Siddhartha Gautama was. So why do they call that moment of seeing the morning star his enlightenment? He already was. And your Zen teacher perhaps explains that Gautama was enlightened, but until that moment he didn't know he was enlightened, or he hadn't realized his enlightenment. In some versions of the story, in fact, Buddha himself makes this distinction. In the Avatamsaka, or Flower Garland Sutra, quoted in Book of Serenity number 67, Shakyamuni Buddha says, As I now see all sentient beings everywhere, they're endowed with the Tathagata's wisdom and virtue. But because of false conceptions and attachments, they do not realize it. This recreates the dualism at the next level. The dualism of enlightened and non-enlightened is now replaced with the dualism of those who realize it and those who don't. Still a dualism. When one student pointed this out to me, I replied in fairly typical Zen teacher fashion, wipe away that dualism too. The very wiping away of any dualism inevitably leaves behind a new dualism between the old dualism being wiped away and it not being wiped away. Just keep wiping them away anyway. All beings are enlightened just as they are, but they don't realize it, says Buddha. So you're thinking, great, I am enlightened. All I have to do is know that I am. But then your teacher, Zen teacher says, no, actually, the ones who think they're enlightened aren't. <laughs> As one Buddhist teacher explained, do not think that enlightenment is going to make you special. It's not. 
If you feel special in any way, then enlightenment has not occurred. I meet a lot of people who think they are enlightened and awake simply because they've had a very moving spiritual experience. They wear their enlightenment on their sleeve like a badge of honor. They sit among friends and talk about how awake they are while sipping coffee at a cafe. The funny thing about enlightenment is that it, when it's authentic, there's no one to claim it. Enlightenment is very ordinary. It's nothing special. Rather than making you special, it's going to make you less special. It plants you right in the center of a wonderful humility and innocence. Oh, the old Zen bait and switch. You get lured in with enticements about enlightenment, and then what you get is humility. Probably not what you thought you were signing up for. But if you stick around, it turns out to have more joy and life in it than what you thought enlightenment was. No Zen teachers would mean no one to say things like this gem from Dogen. An ancient Buddha said, mountains are mountains, waters are waters. These words do not mean mountains are mountains. They mean mountains are mountains. The people who have been practicing a few years hear or read this, and they go, oh, interesting point. It means mountains are mountains, not mountains are mountains. And the people who have been practicing for a few decades hear this, and they go, obviously. Meanwhile, your inner voice sounds like Chidi Anagonye. What? That makes no sense. That's a pop culture reference. Chidi Anagonye is a character on a TV show. If you hang out around Zen centers, it won't be long before you learn about the Four Noble Truths. They are on the conventional translation and interpretation. Number one, the symptoms. Patient has dukkha, affliction, stress, friction, dissatisfaction. Number two, the diagnosis, tanha, clinging is the cause of dukkha. Number three, the prognosis. There is cessation of dukkha, and number four, the prescription, the eightfold path, or uh, right view and, or understanding, right thought or intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But if you learned those four propositions at a Zen center, you probably had already recited the Heart Sutra, as we did this morning, the Heart Sutra goes right down the Four Noble Truths and denies each one in turn. There is no suffering, no cause, no cessation, and no path. One Zen teacher will encourage practicing with zeal. The next will say, you need to chill a little bit. If the student talks from the relative perspective, the teacher says, see things from the absolute point of view. If the student talks about the absolute, the teacher cautions bringing it down to the relative. If the student says both relative and absolute, the teacher says neither relative nor absolute. And if the student says neither relative nor absolute, the teacher says both relative and absolute. This does not distinguish a Zen teacher from an asshole. <laughs> Still, as exasperating and obnoxious as Zen teachers are, 
we need them. My own experience confirms Gary Wick's remark. I've met some students who have sat on their own for years and believe they have a deep understanding when all they have really done is mistake the smoke for the fire. A teacher will give you a push from behind, but it's you who has to walk. And when you do walk, the teacher's there to make sure you know that you aren't flying. Left to our own devices, we will just keep on going down that old mind road, reinforcing our prejudices, hijacked by ego. Teacher and Sangha work together. Those with less experience than you and those with more experience than you alike nudge you from complacency and encourage you onward. We can't do it by ourselves. And nobody else can do it for us, as Reb Anderson said. Practice is a joint venture. And as Dogen also said, the practice is the enlightenment. We do it together, or we aren't really doing it at all. A private retreat can be a wonderful thing, as long as at the end of it you come in and see how you stand up in the context of teacher and fellow practitioners. It is ultimately a joint venture, even when you're by yourself. Even the Buddha wasn't far from his five friends. He had practiced with them for a long time, and before them, he'd trained many years with other groups and teachers. He had split off from the five friends for, essentially, a private retreat. And soon after he'd had his morning star experience, he met back up with them. So even the Buddha didn't get there alone. We have to have Sangha. Huang Bo urges us not to be gobblers of dregs. The term is literally eaters of wine dregs or of brewer's grain. It's the dregs left over after the wine or the brew has been made and siphoned off. She, I will adopt what is sometimes the practice here of imagining ancient masters as women, as part of the much larger project of dismantling the patriarchal bias of our tradition. She's saying, you think you're getting the real thing, but you're just taking in the dregs of it. If you go on studying Zen like that, she says, where will you have today? She's talking about students who travel around from one teacher to another doing a zazenkai here and a session over there. As soon as they've heard a few talks from and had some interviews with one teacher, they're ready to move on and check out the next one. They are spiritual tourists. Not that there isn't a time for exploring the field and getting a broad exposure. Huang Bo herself studied with a number of masters before coming to Baijiang, from whom she received Dharma transmission. I took up a Buddhist meditation 19 years ago. And for the first year, I was with a Vipassana teacher and a group in North Carolina, and then my family moved to El Paso. And I wanted to try out this Zen thing. I was also, at that time, in preparation to become a Unitarian Universalist minister. I had heard about James Ford, a Unitarian Universalist minister who was also a Zen priest. So I emailed him and introduced myself, and I said I wanted to try Zen. 
And he wrote back and he suggested some teachers who were, he thought, in the vicinity of El Paso. And they were all within a 12-hour drive of El Paso. And then he said, there are two times to visit many teachers, at the beginning of your training and at the end. I've always remembered that. So no, I don't think Wang Bo is implying that you should commit your life to the first meditation center you happen to walk into. Give yourself some time. Experience a number of different practice and teaching styles. The purpose, though, is not to keep on accumulating different experiences as if they were toys and you believed that whoever dies with the most toys wins. The purpose is to get a rough sense of what's out there so you can find one to settle down with. It should be a teacher and a sangha that makes sense to you, but not too much sense. If they never make you say, or at least think, what? That makes no sense. That's a sign that that place might be for you a place of more complacency than of growth. The teachers say those perplexing, exasperating things ultimately to nudge you toward liberation, toward an ability to abide in a fluid reality in which mountains are mountains and at the same time they aren't because they're constantly changing, because they aren't separable from so-called non-mountainous reality, because what mountain means to you is constantly evolving, because there's no fixed thing and no separate thing for a mountain to mean or to be. If teachers say contradictory things, it's to help you live into two opposite truths. No matter who you are, howsoever confused and scattered, you are enough. You are whole and you are perfect. And no matter who you are, Howsoever clever and knowledgeable, you are partial and incomplete, and you've got some work to do. If you go on studying Zen like that, says Wang Bo, or as it reads in another translation, if you keep visiting temples and masters here and there in a lukewarm manner, where will you have today? Even if you are settled down with one teacher and sangha and they are solid and you've been there for years, you might still be kind of slurping on some dregs. If you're living on a diet of concepts, giving yourself, gorging yourself on thoughts, content with such dregs, where will you have today? Where will you have today? Another translation gives, when will there ever be a day for you? Once when Huang Bo was studying with Bai Zhang, Bai Zhang had told her, if your understanding equals that of your teacher, you will cut her merit in half. Only when your wisdom exceeds that of your teacher are you worthy to pass on the transmission. So Huang Bo would have had a clear sense that her students should not just learn what she had to teach, but needed to surpass her. They weren't going to surpass her if all they did was take careful notes and memorize what she said. They needed 
to come into their own. They needed to have their own day, to have their today, to experience for themselves and in their own way the eternal quality of this day, this hour, this moment, to see for themselves, as Yunmen would put it a century later, that every day is a good day. And some of Huang Bo's students did have their today. One of Huang Bo's students, perhaps in the hall on the day that she called them all slurpers of dregs, was Lin Ji, Rinzai in Japanese. Yeah, Huang Bo was Rinzai's teacher. So then a monk comes forward and says, but surely there are those who teach disciples and preside over the assemblies. What about that? And Wang Bo says, I do not say there is no Zen, but that there is no Zen teacher. So there is Zen. It's something people get together and do. They have assemblies and form disciple relationships. We might add that they inhabit places called monasteries. They ring bells and smack boards and clap clappers. And these noises tell them when to come to a room called a zendo and sit very still and quiet until the next bell tells them it's time for a unison chant. This is the manifest doing of Zen. There is no teacher. There's no one who can do it for you. There's no one outside you. So no one to fix you from outside. And that's why the Diamond Sutra has the Buddha saying, throughout my career, I have not taught one word of Dharma. There's no Zen teacher, but there is Zen, all of us together, co-creating practice, co-creating enlightenment. If there is to be Zen, as Wang Bo says there is, what is our task? What is the work that all the bells, boards, clappers, mats, cushions, altars, incense, bowing, chanting, and getting together in a room with our friends to be very still and quiet together is supposed to facilitate? There are a lot of ways to say what that work is, and you've probably heard a lot of them. I offer you today one more, a way to describe our task based on the Four Noble Truths but reconceived as a fourfold task. What we know as the Four Noble Truths appear in the Dhammakaka Pavatana Sutta, setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion, which is traditionally said to be the Buddha's first teaching after his awakening. To understand these four propositions in the new way I'm talking about, we start with the second truth and turn the conventional translation on its head. Here's how the second truth reads in a conventional translation, this one from Thanissaro Bhikkhu's translation of the Dhammakaka Pavatana Sutta, setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. And this, monks, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, that is, craving for sensuality, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. The truth of the origination of stress. The Pali term that's here being translated as origination of stress is dukkha samudaya. 
Samudaya means arising or coming together, a coming into being, or it can mean origination as it comes together, as it arises. The term dukkha samudaya, that is affliction arising or affliction origination, is actually ambiguous. Affliction arising could mean the arising of affliction or the arising from affliction, the arising that produces affliction or the arising that affliction produces. So is the arising a result of dukkha or the cause of dukkha? Conventional translation and interpretation so widely taken for granted within the Buddhist world says craving is the cause of dukkha. But there are some good reasons for looking at this the other way around. Dukkha is the cause of craving. Craving as a reaction to dukkha. One argument for this turnaround is that the text has already told us where the dukkha comes from. The first truth reads, now this monk is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. So it's not craving that produces dukkha. It's birth, aging, sickness, and death that produce or constitute dukkha. The third truth tells us that there is a way out. There is a ceasing. A way out of what? We are not getting out of birth, death, aging, sickness. As the five remembrances say, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no escape from growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. That's not some Mahayana apostasy. That's right there in the Upajhatana Sutta, as old as the Dhammakaka Papatana. So if dukkha is old age, sickness, and death, and there's no way out of old age, sickness, and death, then there is no ceasing of dukkha. The Buddha also tells us in the first truth that dukkha is also sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, despair. Dukkha is association with the unbeloved, and dukkha is separation from the loved. Dukkha is not getting what is wanted, and none of that is going to stop. No matter how enlightened you are, no matter how wise, compassionate, and peacefully equanimous you are, you're going to have some sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. You're going to have times of association with the unbeloved and times of separation from the loved. Times of not getting what is wanted. Since those things are what dukkha is, there's no ceasing of dukkha. So what is the ceasing? We can't stop the dukkha, but we can stop the results the reactivity to the dukkha. On this unconventional reading, craving and clinging are the responses to dukkha, not the cause. And we can learn to quiet the reactivity. As we become aware of 
birth, aging, sickness, and death, as we experience association with the unbeloved and separation from the loved and not getting what is wanted, we react to that by seeking escapes, passions and delights of sensuality, pursuit of our attachments. We crave this or we cling to that in the vain hope that it will give us either security against or at least make us forget about aging, sickness, and death and the other afflictions. The ceasing, then, is the ceasing of the craving that dukkha triggers, not the ceasing of dukkha itself. Notice, then, that dukkha does not mean what is so often it is said to mean, suffering. Old age, sickness, and death may be met with acceptance and equanimity and not involve suffering, or at least not involve the compounding of the suffering that comes from craving and clinging. Association with the unbeloved and separation from the loved, even sorrow and despair may be received with acceptance as just there, without being amplified into anguish and misery. David Brazier, as far as I have been able to tell, is the first writer in English to translate and interpret the Dhammakaka Pavatana Sutta in this unconventional way in his 1997 book, The Feeling Buddha. Stephen Batchelor, 20 years later in After Buddhism, reaches the same conclusion apparently independently. You might disagree, but it seems to me they have a good point. In other suttas, for instance, the word samudaya is used to mean fruits, such as in the discourse to Lohika, where the Buddha talks to the Brahmin Lohika about enjoying the fruits of the good stewardship and management of his village. And the word for fruits there is samudaya, what arises. And it clearly means the results, the effects, the cause, not the cause. So with that crucial turnaround, we're ready to recast the Four Noble Truths as the fourfold task. One, comprehend suffering. Two, let go of arising. Three, behold the ceasing. And four, cultivate the path. As noble truths, they are doctrine to believe. As tasks, they are practices to nurture. This four-part task is what we undertake on the cushion and off of it. The first one, comprehend the suffering. Investigate birth, old age, sickness, and death. Attend carefully to sorrow and lamentation, pain, distress, and despair, both within the skin bag that you call you and the wider body, your wider body, called the world. We have been thrown into this world at birth and are constantly subject to illness and breakdown. Each breath could be your last. Rather than pushing that thought out of mind, carry it in or near the front of your mind all the time. We keep meeting what we do not like, losing what we cherish, failing to get what we desire. Pay attention to features of life we easily fall into overlooking or ignoring, the tragic dimension of life. 
Otherwise, we become enamored, seduced, captivated by what is merely agreeable, which leads to cycles of reactive and addictive behavior. Comprehend suffering. Understand it. Wrap your mind around it. Wrap your heart around it. Take it in. Embrace it with the thousand arms of your Avalokitesvara self. Comprehend in the sense of encompass. Encompass the totality of what life includes. This is the first task. Keeping our eyes open to the totality. All of the beauty and all of the tragedy. Keeping our hearts open to all the ambiguity, the strangeness, and the ineffability of life. To comprehend dukkha, says Stephen Batchelor, is to comprehend life intimately and ironically, with all of its paradoxes and quirks, its horrors and its jokes, its sublimity and its banality. To comprehend suffering is to meet the reality of life with an understanding that is open-hearted, clear-headed, compassionate, and equanimous. This is the task we take up on the cushion, and it's the task we take up in our lives. That's the first task, comprehend suffering. Second, let go of the arising. The reactivity of craving, of attachments, and aversion arises. Samudaya. Our task is to let go of it. Our task is not to not have reactions. We are going to have them. All kinds of things arise. Restlessness, boredom, guilt, shame, vanity, inadequacy, self-doubt, anxiety, expectation, fear, loathing, anger, lust, envy, craving. Such reactions are not even ours. They're simply what happens when an organism interacts with its environment. They are what arises. Our task is simply to not amplify and proliferate them. Our task is to suspend the default habit of seeing the world as being hostile, desirable, or boring. Our task is to neither repress nor indulge. In one version of metta, or loving-kindness, practice, we express the wish for ourselves and for others to be free from fear. But the fear reaction is going to arise. So some practitioners prefer to express the wish instead as to accept fear. OK. The thing is that non-acceptance is also sometimes going to arise. And when it does, our task is to accept the fact that we can't accept our fear. And if you can't accept that you can't accept fear, then accept that you can't accept that you can't accept fear. Just keep adding as many layers as you need to add to get out to something that you can accept. And from there, investigate the previous layer in until you can accept it too, and it dissolves. In many of the dialogues with Mara, the Buddha concludes by saying, I know you, Mara, whereupon Mara vanishes. With such comprehension, the practitioner sees the, 
the tricksterish wiles of our reactivity for what they are, seductive and infantile play of an organism that is preoccupied with itself. The first task supports the second task. Training ourselves to comprehend the world as an infinitely suffering world also helps us let go of our reactivity to it. And the second task supports the first for letting our reactivity pass on through, unhindered or amplified or clung to, engenders a fuller comprehension of all the world's poignancy, tragedy, and sublimity. So, comprehend suffering. Let go of reactivity. Third, behold the ceasing. Whatever arises also ceases. There are times in your life when you aren't being reactive. You have been calm and relaxed. Yes, you can get into a reactive loop that holds you in its grip for maybe days at a time or possibly grabs you recurrently every time, say, the thought of your ex comes to mind. But there are also times when reactivity has been absent. For just as reactions arise, so they inevitably subside. At that moment, you see for yourself that you are free to think and speak and act in ways not determined by reactivity. This third task is to become aware of this clearing in the jungle of reactivity and keep it in view. This does not require years of meditation culminating in a mystical awakening experience. Every one of us has already had moments of realizing we are not beholden to the prompts of sensual desire and being and ignorance. We've all had moments when we were in their grip and moments when we weren't. Our task in beholding the ceasing is to affirm and valorize those moments when we were free. Liberation isn't something that only a few mystics have ever achieved. We have all known it. The task is to make liberation an ever larger proportion of our life, which we do by beholding it when it's there. The second task, letting go of reactivity, involves knowing when greed, hatred, delusion, or fear, anxiety, or any reactivity are with you. The third task, beholding the ceasing, involves knowing when reactive states are not with you. When you feel calm, be aware of your calmness. When you are feeling free and creative, be aware that you are feeling free and creative. Beholding the ceasing in this way helps the ceasing happen more often and for a longer period. Comprehend suffering. Let go of reactivity. Behold the ceasing. The fourth task, cultivate the path. If you have been at work comprehending suffering and embracing all of life and letting go of reactivity and beholding the cessation, then you are already doing a lot of cultivating the path. To further cultivate the path involves some attention to your view or understanding, your thought or intention, your speech, action, livelihood, your effort, mindfulness, and, and concentration. It's the path of wholeness and the path to 
wholeness. To say cultivate the path means the path needs to be created and sustained from moment to moment. The path does not stretch out ahead into the distance waiting for you to leisurely stroll along it. It requires ongoing care and application. And it requires sangha, friends on the path, with whom we share in this ongoing care and application. For an example of what the first task, at least, can look like, comprehending and embracing suffering and all the tragedy and beauty of life, I turn, as I often do, to the Reverend Dr. Laura Kim Joyner, whose career has taken her from wildlife avian veterinarian and conservationist to Unitarian Universalist minister and back to wildlife conservationist. She works to save the parrots of Latin America. And full disclosure again, she is my spouse. A couple months ago, she gave a talk about her recent experiences. And here's a segment of what she said. As a conservationist, it seems that not a day goes by when I don't experience directly or get a message on my phone long distance of some terrible thing that has happened to some person or parrot. For instance, the indigenous leader with whom we work in Honduras had an assassination attempt against him in November because he protects the forest into which our conservationists, called parakeet rangers, go deeper and deeper every year to protect. He survived, but we don't know what it means for our people there, who are so beautiful as they risk their lives to establish the largest community-protected parrot region in the world. Another example of beauty occurred just last month. I was in Guyana counting parrots at a roost site that had never been studied and was amazed to observe 2,611 parrots who slept, played, and fussed with each other there. Wow! But as we finished the count, we saw flashlights come up behind part we saw flashlights light up one part of the roost site and upon investigation found a boatload of boys with slingshots who were hunting parrots. The heartache of conservation mixes with the awe of life and slowly over the years I have learned that there is no beauty without tragedy and that beauty never fades and that beauty is everywhere. Knowing this is both a burden and a blessing, for our hearts are ever opening to the suffering and loss around us of vital, wondrous life. Yet no matter the despair, beauty and joy accompany us. We vow to keep our hearts open to our pain and that of others, for it compels us to do the inner work so that we have the awareness and resilience and power to do our outer work on behalf of all the people who are caught in an unjust societal system. We accept the tragedy, so paradoxically we change it through transformative parrot conservation or transformative social action of any kind. It's transformative because the outer societal transformation only comes about accompanied by an inner transformation based on beauty, tragedy, and its results. Love. 
We're not talking about some minor change, but a complete revamping of how we think and live. Through work and experiential immersion in beauty and love, we come out as completely different people on the other side because we've shed the stories that don't result in our freedom and the liberation of others. For this transformation to take place, we have to work at it. It's not easy to be inspired by beauty while immersed in an awareness of tragedy. So we have to look for beauty wherever we can. For instance, in the bathroom. It can be a dangerous place. Now imagine that the bathroom is an outdoor latrine perched on a hill overlooking a river that divides Guyana and Brazil. I was there last month and took a bathroom break while the rest of the parakeet ranger team went on down to the boat on the river. The outhouse had no doors and only one rusty piece of metal shielding on one side. It was open to all around me. The towering tropical mountains that had been jeweled with the bright yellow sun parakeets all morning. The sparkling river and an expansive blue, blue sky that seemed to go on forever. As I got up to leave, the rotten floorboards crumbled on one side, and I fell partially through. The only thing that saved me was my right leg that was precariously perched on some trembling rotten boards. I was wedged halfway down a latrine pit. But what a view. <laughs> We can't do it by ourselves. And nobody else can do it for us. We must, each of us, take up the task for ourselves and for all life. We have to do it. And we have to do it together. We have to have Sangha. Nobody gets to freedom alone. We have to do this together. Friends, we have to. <laughs>